listening to a message from Park Springs Bible Church, located in Arlington, Texas, where we discover life in the power of God's grace and share His life-changing grace with others. Join us as we hear from the Word. Well, good morning. On a personal note, just uh, really grateful for our incredibly talented worship team and just their humility that they bring in setting an atmosphere where our eyes are directed towards Christ. It, it ministered to me, and when they are up here just serving the Lord, it's just a huge encouragement and just fills my soul to, to be able to preach. So I, personally, I'm truly grateful for our worship team and the work that they put in to, to minister to us. So we're jumping back into the book of James. We've got two weeks left, um, so hold on to your hats and glasses, as they say. Uh, we've, we're, we're almost to the end of this, uh, this book, and, and, and James has been um, re- relentlessly honest <laughs> with the reality of kind of exposing aspects of our hearts, and, and he starts off the entire book by helping us understand that, that in Christ we lack nothing. And that, that has a, a flip side to it. And the flip side is, is that when we are trying to do things on our own, self-sufficiency or self-reliance, we live in the land of lack in the sense that we don't have the ability or capability to do the things we before us in ways that are honoring to God by doing it in and of our own strength. So there's this constant reminder of spaces, if not holistically, this is where you need Jesus, right? And so he's talked about relationships, he's talked about provision, he's talked about all these areas where our faith is, is generated and where we're growing and, and where he's pushing against those things. And last week was a, a pretty important tipping point, I guess, as James is walking through this book, is he, he's really addressing what we would say would be a topic of, of arrogance, but I think he does it in a couple of different ways. And so at the end of chapter four, I just want to remind us about the things that he was really addressing in the context of our hearts and how we think about in the tendency when we felt like there's been an injustice towards us, specifically by someone who professes to be a believer, the tendency of our flesh is to talk evil about them, to, to demonize them in such a way that we're, we're only seeing the version that we want to see, and that version that we see is the person that hurt us. And so we start to live in this fantasy world that doesn't exist for two different reasons. I think James gives us those reasons of arrogance and anxiety. Arrogance is like trying to control the world, and anxiety is trying to prevent the world you're fearful of happening. And so let me just remind you what we talked about. Both arrogance and anxiety live in a world that doesn't exist. There's manufacturing a potentiality of what could or what you want to have happen, and it becomes to, uh, so shaping the way that we view and interact with the world that, that it's as though we're actually unable to live in the present hope of the transforming, rescuing grace of Jesus. See, there's a, there's a casualty that exists when our hearts and our minds are so attached to a world that we want or a world that we're afraid of that what we end up doing is that what governs our emotions and even governs our worship is a world that actually doesn't even exist. And what we miss is the present provision of the rescuing, transforming, intimate relationship with Christ. So arrogance is a, is a world that we want to control, that, that we, we think about this life and we're trying to just make it happen and grin and bear it and we, we boast about the things that we've achieved. 
Anxiety is living in a world that we want to prevent. That fear is on the cusp of so many different aspects of our lives that we're thinking about and even trying to plan and prepare for almost every eventuality. And what ends up sitting on our hearts is this place that, that where there's just this anxiety, fearful, controlling response about the worst case scenario of what things could happen. In the process of those things, in what James talked about in chapter four, it is not about making us feel guilty. The part of this is some level of awareness that these things attach themselves to our lives with utter frequency. And so what do we do? How do we think about all of those things and even those desires that tend to overshadow our worship of Christ? Well, ultimately, it's, it's returning to the truth that we lack nothing in Christ. And so certainly there's a lot of complicated issues when we talk about God dealing with both arrogance and anxiety. And it's, I don't want to oversimplify it, but in the process of those things, I want us to know that Christ will meet us in those moments. It's not as though we're just trying to say, don't feel that anymore, get over it. We're saying that the rescuing power of Jesus is allowing us to experience a transforming grace that you and I need on a daily basis. So now we're moving into chapter five. So if that's the stage that he said about kind of really tilling our hearts about those tendencies in which we, we go to one side or the other and our, our flesh begins to get ignited by the circumstances around us, chapter five, he, he scripts this play, if you will, maybe a little creative license, but there are two different individuals that find themselves in James chapter five, verses one through 12. You have the villain and the victim. He's going to address the reality that there is a broken world that surrounds all believers throughout all times and all centuries. Like there's not a moment where there is not some obstacle or somehow in some way somebody trying to take advantage of the generous Christian gospel that would seek to serve and wash people's feet. And none of us like to get taken advantage of. None of us. So how do we deal with the world in the sense of the villains that might be coming at those who are trying to humbly lead a faithful followership and a faithful discipleship and a faithful love for Jesus. And then there's the victim. How have and do you and I respond when we are taken advantage of? There is this poignant place that James takes us And what he's really dealing with is how we process injustice. You know injustice, don't you? Those times where people see only a version of you, things done to you that seem unfair, that they didn't take everything into account or someone else's sin has spilled over onto your heart and there's a level of injustice that starts to just generate a a level of bitterness and frustration towards those individuals. You know you've felt injustice that when you think about that individual, all you can think about is how bad they've hurt you. Injustice is something that he's going to talk about in the second portion of this text. So he divides it and addresses both the villain and the victim. One of the things that I've enjoyed most, or one of the, I don't know, maybe you call it a hobby, but I'm always interested in people's story. Whether they're believers or not believers, I I get intrigued by how an individual came to be who they are. 
And so I, I love biographies, I love autobiographies, just a place of what shaped this individual. I came across a study on Viktor Frankl. I'm not sure many of you guys might know who he is, but he was a uh, neuro, uh, neurologist as well as a psychiatrist growing up in the World War I, World War II area. Uh, World War I, he found himself, uh, his family was dirt poor, and they had to actually beg farmers consistently for food. <laughs> he found his way into the study and became interested in counseling and psychiatry. Wanting to understand more about the human condition, he wrote a book called The Meaning of Life. And again, he writes that book from the standpoint of the best as I can understand, not a believer in Jesus Christ. In the process of that, as he was working at this hospital called Rothschild Hospital, helping all of those who have navigated tremendous abuse and pain and difficulty and suffering, um, it's when the Nazis began to take over. He was a Jew. He married a, a woman from Prague, and his family was Jewish. And so what ended up happening is every single one of them got put in a concentration camp, Victor included. In the process of living through this concentration camp, he tried to do the best he could. And one of the things that he started with all of the prisoners, if you will, that were a part of this camp is that there was a, a, a shocking reality of when people came in and were first new to Auschwitz, which is where he was for a bit, um, they, they had to walk through the emotional trauma of what would be experienced that their whole life had now been taken from them. And they're in this concentration camp, not sure what the next day would bring. He married uh, his wife, Tilly, and in the process of that, through being in Auschwitz, he was sent and separated from his wife and sent to a work camp. After the work camp, and they finally, uh, you know, the allies were able to free all of these people, um, he looked for his wife and found out that his wife, his dad, his mom had all been killed in the concentration camp. And then he writes his book about the meaning of life. You know that there are elements that shaped him in tremendous ways. This ability to process such levels of hatred and injustice. Like how do you respond to something that traumatic? The reason I think I'm so interested in these autobiographies is because there's a part in which, especially when they're non-believers, I want to figure out how the gospel applies to their situation. Like how could the gospel have made such a difference and so much hope. Here are some of the quotes that he made about thinking about his life and his experience. Life is never made unbearable by circumstances, he said, but only by the lack of meaning and purpose. A solution to the injustice in which he dealt with at the loss of his family and the challenges that he faced was that the only way that I could figure out how to navigate those circumstances was to find purpose. He also says this, when we are no longer able to change a situation, we are challenged to change ourselves. Intriguing. There's an introspection. He's already given to this thought of emotions in the heart, trying to process those things. And, and there seems to be some embedded wisdom in that. But what's missing? Well, what's missing is the utter biblical truth that we never change ourselves. We don't have that ability. 
there's a sense in which something outside of us becomes the instrument of change within us. And so those unbearable circumstances don't have to dictate my understanding of everything that I see and everything that I view, but Christ himself intrudes, embeds himself in my life so that the strength that I need to bear unbearable circumstances isn't born by me. It's born by Jesus. And in the process of that intimacy with Jesus, there's a movement towards understanding how the gospel makes its way into every circumstance from something like the Holocaust to the injustice that you felt on a daily basis. And what is that? Well, funny you should ask. James chapter five, if you will, verses, we're gonna just start off with verses one through six. So this is a warning And it tells us very clearly, there's an indictment. And the indictment, like villains and victims, the indictment is against these individuals that are likely outside the Christian community that are extorting the Christian community for their own gain. I mean, these are literally the payday loan people of the ancient world. I'm serious. Like they are absolutely doing everything that they can to extort these individuals, to work them to their fingers to the bone, just so that they can get richer. And we can relate with the sense of that sort of villainy. How does God handle that villainy? So the indictment is against self-sufficiency that rules the heart of man. And here's what he says. Come now. And again, like I said last week, this is like, come on, man. Like, you gotta see that something's coming. Like, you know that he's ramping up and gearing up to really say something specific to these individuals, and he does. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments and, uh, are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. He is not a popular dude here. You have laid up your treasures in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your field, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. He being the righteous person. So you have this indictment, this sense, whereas he's scripting the characters in this play in James chapter five, the script, the first portrait that gets painted is that of the villain, the individual that is so convinced that this life is all that's left, that you're about willing to do whatever you can to make this life as as perfectly comfortable as possible. Longings and desires to work on the backs of others to achieve your own significance and success. Those who don't see their lack, James says, will see they lack the only thing that really matters. So here becomes the process that that James gets us to is he says, we think as we look at the world outside of all of the injustice and even what I would love for Victor Frankl to know, he died in 1997, so I probably never have the chance to tell him anyway, but but what I'd want you to know is all of the injustice that you navigated and and for you and me sitting in this audience, every, every injustice that's been done to you that has been unfair and unrighteous and ungood, God sees. Ungood's not a word, but it is today, just so you know. 
Uh, I, I'm, I'm doing Paul stuff, so I'm making up my own things. But there's a sense in which what the reality that exists is that the injustice that you have felt is not unseen by God. He, he is aware of those realities. And what, what he's saying is that when there are individuals that are so consumed with maintaining and hoping that this earthly life will be all that they want, they receive their dividends, if you will. They receive the joy in this life because one of the things that they're most missing is the reality that what they lack, they need the most. And that is a surrendered, humble heart before Jesus. So this is not, and I'm gonna be very clear here, this is not an indictment against wealth. (laughs) This is not what James is saying. He is saying there are those that are out there extorting individuals to make their way and move their way up in the social system. That there's a self-sufficiency that has gripped these individuals' hearts so much so that they're willing to get whatever they can out of everyone else. And one of the things that is so critical that needs to be realized in this text is that when you're talking about the economy of heaven, injustice is not part of God's vocabulary. Injustice is not a part of God's vocabulary. Meaning that as we look through the pages of scripture, God writes every wrong. That the injustice that you feel is not something that God is just putting you through in hopes that you can bear it and maybe it'll just get better one day. There's a place of transformation where we realize that when we have been wounded and hurt by those around us and injustice has been done with people that we trusted, which is usually the worst part of the injustice. When we've been hurt, God meets us with his rescuing grace. How? Well, I wanna tell you about a savior that knows about injustice. I wanna tell you about a Jesus that is so fundamentally aware of betrayal and hurt that if there is anyone in the context of this entire universe that can relate to the pain you feel, I wanna take you to Jesus. He knows about the experience that you've experienced and he also is the source of your hope that that injustice does not have to embed itself in your heart in such a way that it becomes to be determinative or become an identity to you where that pain that you feel is all you know. Jesus wants to enter that place. He doesn't wanna say, look, let's just, just, just don't think about it anymore and it'll go away. No, he wants us to be well, fundamentally aware that daily in the process of our own healing, we need the rescuing grace of Jesus. You know how that helps? It helps in ensuring that if we understand that we need the rescuing grace of Jesus, that we then don't have to demonize the other person because we know that they need it too. You see, as he scripts this play, if you will, of the villain and the victim, he's moving to the place of helping us realize that it's not so cut and dry. The villain and the victim aren't necessarily always two different people. They live inside each of us. There are times we've wanted to get away with things knowing that no one else would know. There's times where we've cut corners, at least in my own heart, places where we've made compromises, decisions that have hurt other people. I've played the villain and I've felt the stinging pain of being the victim. I think before we move on from this text too quickly, it's easy to keep it at a place where we would say, well, the villains are always the villains and God will deal with them. And certainly that's true in the sense that there's always justice that God will provide. 
But I don't wanna miss the reality that the need that exists inside of our hearts is that villain has the same flesh I do, (laughs) has the same heart, has the same selfish tendencies, and maybe they're more adept or or better at it than I am, but at the same reality that, that lives inside of me, I am both the villain and the victim. Those who don't see their lack will see their lack in the only thing that really matters. We need Jesus. And that's the point of living in the land of lack is that we lack nothing because we don't find a place where somehow and everything, are, all of the needs are provided for. No, we find our sufficiency in the fact that Jesus, in Jesus, we lack nothing. Another one of those books that I've been reading, it's certainly 100% true that this guy is a non-believer. <laughs> he's very clear about it. But as he's writing this book, he wrote a book called Endure. His name's Cameron Haynes. And He's got a bit of a chip on his shoulder and he, he works through some things in the context of his life. He's had a very unique story, grew up in a uh, kind of an abusive home. His dad was an alcoholic. He, uh, he lost a close friend in a car accident. Uh, his parents had gotten divorced. He hated his stepdad when his mom remarried. Just trauma after trauma. And in the process of those things, he, he finds bow hunting, which is his huge passion, but he also runs tons of miles and he he just talks about how he's experienced the things and how how running and endurance has has made a difference in his life and he comes across as a bit intense maybe maybe a bit arrogant of you know just do these things but it's like he's trying to prove something in the context of his life and in through those things he, he said some interesting things that I think if we understand it through the lenses of the gospel make sense and can be redeemed and here's one of the things that I, I remember him saying says, the easiest thing that you can do in life is quit. I'm like, all right. <laughs> I'm going to find some motivation. Like, that's the easy thing to do. But there's no gospel. There's no sense in which, what, what does that really mean? Like, I just have to muster up enough strength to pull this off. Because then, if that's the answer, then I just have to work harder. I just have to do better. There's something in me where I just need to, to, to tap into some inner resources of my capabilities and become some version of myself that I want to be. The easiest thing to do in life is quit. I think James is going to tell us that maybe that's true. The easiest thing to do in life is quit. The hardest thing to do in life is surrender. The easiest thing to do in life is quit. But I think if we redeem what he's saying, the hardest thing to do in life is surrender. What if it's not about your ability or mine? What if it's not about mustering up enough strength? What if it is looking and peering into those places where we've been wounded and hurt and the injustice and the bitterness is, is, is seeking to take over that we become prickly and abrasive with people because there's such a level of frustration that exists inside that the, the villain reality is living and breathing inside of me. What do I need? What do I do? Well, the easiest thing to do would be to give up. The hardest thing to do is surrender. Let me tell you, and let me just read for you how James encourages believers who have been victims of tremendous unfairness and injustice. And here's what he tells them. Be patient. <laughs> Come on, man. Like, you got to give me something more than just be patient. Like, that's, that's like standing in a long line at Kroger. Like, I, I don't, I mean, this is real stuff. But here he continues on. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, 
being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts. And if you ever circle things in your Bible, circle that. Like part of what James is saying is we've got to anchor our hearts and our emotions, the seedbed of our feelings and thoughts on the truth of the rescuing, transforming power of Jesus. So be patient, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, consider those blessed whom remain steadfast. You, heard, you have heard the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is, is what? The Lord is what? Com- compassionate. And merciful in the midst of the stinging injustice you've felt and what you've done, what you will always receive when you come to Jesus is what? Compassion and mercy. So what's the option? Come, right? That's what he's saying. Just press back into the reality of the life-transforming, rescuing grace of Jesus. Verse 12, but above all, brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fail or fall under condemnation. I think here's what he's saying. He's talking about living fully in the relationship and the rescuing, transforming grace of Jesus. I think he finishes up by saying, let your yes be yes and your no be no, in saying, like, be honest. Be authentic about the reality of what's going on inside. There's not a reason to pretend in church. Now, it might be the place that is easiest to do it. But the rawness and the reality of what you and I feel on a regular basis and the places that the Lord is changing us, how encouraged are you to hear the life-transforming power and rescuing grace of Jesus in another person's life? I think it motivates us to be like, man, that Jesus is awesome. And he's compassionate and merciful to all who come to him. But then we become very guarded with our stories. Make it seem like things are okay. Life is not that hard. The easiest thing to do in life is give up. The hardest thing to do is surrender. To lay our lives fully before a compassionate, merciful God and say what? Have your way. Do what you need. I know there are parts of my heart and my life where I'm prickly and I'm abrasive And I need your work to change me. And I need to know that you will not only receive me as I am, but you care enough about me to change me. The rescuing, transforming grace of Jesus is for everything and everyone. Everything you do in life, easiest thing to do in life is give up. Hardest thing to do in life is surrender. So I think he finishes up with this. Remember in the beginning of chapter one, He tells us what? Count it all joy, brothers, when you fall into trials and temptations for the trials and temptations and the testing of your faith produces endurance. I think he's beginning to capture that thought at the end of chapter five or in the middle of the end of this section. And here's what he's saying. I think suffering sparks 
our need for change, but only Jesus can be the source of change. I think when we look at suffering and the challenges around us and the the arrogance or the anxiety, the bitterness that's creeping into the threshold of our life, those places where we are honestly enough struggling with the things that are around us, he's communicating to us that we see that there are places that need to be changed. And when we mean changed, we mean matured, like growing closer to allowing Jesus to be sovereign over all of these moments. That the villain and the victim that lives and breathes inside of me is not my identity. My identity is scripted by Jesus himself. I'm his son or daughter. I'm part of his family. The sovereign God of the universe has seen and granted such value to me that I promised an inheritance that the riches of Christ are afforded to me that there is never a moment in my life where God is stingy with his compassion and mercy. There's never a moment he's withholding those things. Often the biggest challenge in my life is to tell God, I got this. You just take it back, I got it. And then I don't got it. And I don't got it again. And every time I don't got it, I go back and I realize that Jesus himself is the source of all that sufficiency, that that relationship is not one based on transaction or performance. It's based on his compassionate, merciful, rescuing grace that I need daily. The words I say, the emotions I feel, the the thoughts that I have need Jesus every day. So let your yes be yes and your no be no. Honest about where there are sources of change. As we think about praying on Sunday mornings and the elders are up here, we don't come as elders, number one, as those who figured it out. (laughs) We need the rescuing grace of Jesus as much as anyone. But we want to invite ourselves into your life and we want you to know that all we want to do is take you to the compassionate, merciful Savior who loves you. You do not need to hide and neither should I. There is a place where we are open and authentic that our yes is our yes and our no is our no. Who we are and what God is doing in our life is so much worthy to be told because the God who is doing it. So I'll leave you with this. Our lack is not supplied by our ability, but the rescuing, strengthening grace of Christ. Our lack is not supplied by our ability to figure out life and do the hard stuff. Easiest thing to do in life is give up hardest thing to do is surrender, to let God be God over every moment and to take all of those emotions that we're feeling and allowing him to use the the grace of Jesus Christ, the common grace of counseling and medicine and all of those things. I don't think that as we struggle with arrogance and anxiety or depression or any of those things that we find ourselves saying, well, I just have to find my way to get through it all. What we're saying is that God is using all of these aspects of our life to draw us into intimacy with him. And however he might do that, what we're saying is that I need change. And my only source of change is Jesus himself. Let me pray for us this morning.